Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Rebecca Ryan. Rebecca Ryan is a futurist, an economist, a communicator, and a thought leader. She trained in economics and then added foresight to that via the Houston program. She's on the board of the Institute of Zen Leadership, is employed as the resident futurist for the local government Institute of Wisconsin, and is the founder of Next Generation Consulting. Welcome to FuturePod, Rebecca. I'm so honored to be here with you, Peter. Question one, Rebecca, as a as a supporter of FuturePod, you know the questions, and you know the first question is, what's your story? So, so what's the Rebecca Ryan story? You know, I have to admit that I my hands sweat a little bit at this question. I was raised <laughs> by these uh, very demurring German Lutherans who, you know, were just you, you didn't talk about yourself. So I, I have that uh, great discomfort. But even more than that, you know, um, another guest on your show and one of your longtime collaborators, Rowena Morrow, she had recommended this book, Sand Talk by Tyson Yunkaporta about, you know, indigenous cultures in Australia. And I read it and then I, I like binged a whole bunch of the podcasts he was on. And he always gets this question, you know, what's your story? And he said, and th- this is how I kind of feel about this question is he said, uh, it's so weird to center yourself in a story. Yeah. I don't, I, f- I do feel uncomfortable for those reasons, uh, centering myself in a story. But what I will say is, if it's true that there's this label of futurist behind my name, it's because like probably so many of your listeners and a good number of your interviewees stumbled into this, mm. you know, just interested in trends and how things seem to move over time. And I, for many years, was looking at the next generation, uh, Generation Xers and the Millennials and now Generation Z, and trying to extrapolate like how these people were living their lives and what that would mean for how communities would work. And then found out that futuring was really a thing. So went, went to the Houston program when uh, Peter Bishop was still there and just really started to apply these tools and innovate. Um, iterate and innovate these tools with clients. So that's that's the Rebecca Ryan accidental futurist story. <laughs> you had a professional path, obviously, to find foresight or foresight found you, whatever the case is. Can you kind of make sense now looking back as to things you did early on that you know, led you to this? In your intro, I called you an economist. Was, is economics part of it for you? God, you know, that was kind of an accident too. I just took every class that John Hughes taught at Drake University in the econ department and I ended up with one of my undergraduate degrees was in economics. But I will say this, I knew micro, what micro econ wasn't for me, far too detailed. So macro econ is kind of where I landed. And I do think that that has had a huge, a significant impact on my weird path as a futurist, because, you know, being able to look at huge tables of data and 
look at some of the trends and think about implications and, you know, labor market economics and so forth is kind of where I was, education. And yeah. so, yeah, there's a through line there. Yeah. I mean, you can't look at population without being a futurist and understand and a historian and understand that these things happen and just grind their way through time. Well, thank you. That actually um, clicks a Lego block into place for me, sir. I appreciate it. That I'm not, you know, I'm not one of those futurists who's like, oh, the flying car. I'm not a technologist futurist. I am a social science futurist. And I do take as much interest in the patterns of history as I do in thinking about the future. So that's the Lego block. Yeah. You're also a communicator and not just an average communicator. You obviously have taken time to develop your craft I'd like you to talk a little bit about that kind of as your story as well, because I think it's an important part of both how you practice, but it's also why you do the things you do. (laughs) Thank you for asking this question, because a friend, I'll still call him a friend, despite what I'm about to tell you, a friend and colleague of mine invited me to talk with the mayor and the mayor's recovery council in his top 10 U.S. city recently. And I don't know if he said this aloud to the group or if he said this to me privately before introducing me to the group, but he's like, you know, you're not the best futurist, but you really have a way of expressing yourself that shakes my brain. I love that. I know. It was so great. And what made it great is that it's absolutely true. I'm not a person who's going to preach the singularity or add anything to that conversation. That is just not, you know, who I am. But what I think I can do is shake brains, as he said, and also help people locate themselves in the future that they want to create. I think I can help people discover their agency. Mm. And as I've learned from you and Rowena, I did not know how important that what that word agency was to hope theory. But that is, in fact, what uh, I think I do well. And it, it lines up because I, I think if we're going to have a better future, it's going to be created with in, from these two, two-legged forms that we both are. Hmm. It's kind of a paradox in the sense that as futurists, we depend on people having hoped through agency and pathways. But also as futurists, we understand that the future is open, chaotic, random. And so people's agency, if it's not delusional, but we would argue you really haven't got perfect agency, but you probably don't even need perfect agency. What do you say? Yeah, I agree with that. You know, through my Zen training, we talk about the person who would be the equivalent of sort of my Zen grandfather. So my teacher's teacher, Tanoi Roshi, he says ki first, which is energy first you certainly can sense that in a person, you know, you can sense someone's energy. You know, the the whole idea is don't spend so much time making a story in your head about what needs to happen or not happen. Like it's okay to just do something. My teacher says all the time, run the experiment. Yes. Yes. Run the experiment. Are there people on the journey that really did help you that you might not have said to them, or this, or people now are looking back, were really pivotal for you in, in just either supporting or opening doors or challenging you? Yes. I feel like every English 
teacher in high school who really sat on my writing, like really marked it up with red pen. Um, I think, (laughs) I think they helped me a lot because I'm, I'm really now (laughs) I'm 48 years old and I am really now starting to understand how important good, clear writing is. Mm. So I'm very grateful to, you know, Rick Real and Barb Yegodinsky and uh, Doris Sexton and my West Bend East High School English department. The other folks who I think have been really helpful to me were my debate and mock trial coaches through high school and college. Ah. Mm -hmm. Because I don't know if if this is how it works in Australia, but here in the U.S., for debate, for example, Lincoln-Douglas debate, you have to go into every round, which is debate, you have to go into every round basically being willing to argue either side of an argument. And that's extremely useful in foresight work, you know, where we have to balance and manage multiple, sometimes competing futures, uh, and to be able to hold those competing thoughts in our minds and, and think about the Hegelian dialectic of like, okay, well, if there's the theory and the you know, the opposite, how does this, how does this, how could it come together? So that, that was really useful sort of mental training. Yeah. And then finally, I had one professor in college who told me to go and study overseas, Ginny Lewis. I said, well, where do you think I should go? I was basically rudderless as a student. She said, oh, you should go to Hungary as in Budapest, Hungary. I mean, the the last Russian tank had just rolled out of that place like eight weeks (laughs) before I stepped foot. And uh, I I went there. I went to to a country that was in the midst of a transition from communist socialist to free market capitalism democracy and ended up, I mean, oddly, walking on to walking on to a professional basketball team, I tried out and on a dare, I tried out and made a professional basketball team. So then I had 11 built in Hungarian friends who I spent, you know, every waking hour with practically and touring the countries play to play basketball. And it was, I mean, that was revolutionary to me as well, because I, as I said, I had been studying economics in the U S and to go to another country and hang out with women who had come up in a completely different system and to, for my ethnocentric bullshit to, to rub up against their very real lived reality. It was humbling in a way that every American should have the opportunity to be humbled in that, in that kind of a way. So I, th- I think Ginny Lewis gets a shout out too. Excellent. Thanks for being Second question, the one where I encourage you to explain the use, how you use a tool or a framework or a model or something that is central to your practice and to obviously explain the use of it to to the listeners, but also the challenges for using it in a skillful way. So what do you want to talk about? Yeah, well, I... I... I hesitate because so many of your guests have talked about this and you've had so high on, but to me, CLA, when I was exposed to that, it was the difference between being an okay futurist and a powerful futurist. And and what I mean is this, 
we're all good at helping clients understand and interpret trends. And we all know how to do scenarios in the futures triangle. And, you know, some of these very, you know, in the three horizons, we, we, we have the, this toolkit sort of down and we can, we can pull out the right tool at the right time. But I would be so frustrated and disappointed when clients just didn't get uptake with whatever we had designed as their strategy. And, and it wasn't for lack of trying and heart and, you know, hours and, you know, this futuring work is, you know, every time you do a new project, it's like, well, I, you know, it's like being willing to be run over by a tank again, because you just <laughs> never know. I mean, we, we are some of the most, we must be some of the most optimistic lot out there. Anyway, I'd had many experiences where I, had clients that just weren't successful or the strategies just never took. And I, I always had a real crisis of confidence. Mm. Sometimes it was almost debilitating. Like I couldn't generate a new proposal for a new client because this, this storm cloud of failure was still hanging over me from my last client. And I don't know, somehow I thought the new client had ESP and would be able to see it and know it and, you know, the imposter syndrome or whatnot. But when I understood CLA, and I wish I could tell you where I was or what was happening, but I had just come out of a process where the client was not getting the uptake. I found out about CLA and I thought, oh, this is it. So I actually went back to that community and I started to do what I can only describe as barstool research, hmm. where I went to every microbrewery in, in the region and like had a pint and sat down next to somebody at the bar. And I would ask like, so, you know, I'm from out of town. What's the story this community tells about itself? Yeah. And down my weight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And <laughs> pint after pint, more truth serum was drunk. And I yep. figured it out. I figured out what the metaphor and myth were in this community. And I went back to the client and said, this is it. This is this is the diff this is going to be the difference between these strategies working or not working. And in this particular client situation, what we had to do was create an external enemy so that these strategies would have an enemy to defeat. You know, like we're going to do these strategies because we have to beat this external force. And hot dog if it didn't work. So CLA has been transformative, but I don't I often do not tell clients that I'm doing it because I, I think I worry that if we, if we would do it together, the client would just be unwilling to maybe admit, you know, once you get down into the metaphor and myth and the worldview level, you have to tell uncomfortable truths. Sometimes they're uncomfortable. Sometimes they're, I mean, I've had the experience and it's not just me, but when the group know the process and they start to do it, often when the person calls the myth out, there's almost a collective inhalation in the group. When when the dragon is named and seen. Oh, man. See, this is where I can still develop my craft because evidently I am really bad at uh, setting up the process. Yeah, yeah. Again, my experience, and I'm no, and in no way am I one of the great exponents at CLA. When a group has been wrestling with, been yeah, have been wrestling with problems and 
have been you know unsuccessful in addressing them, then often they just need to get out of their own way and look at it differently. When they understand CLA, which moves down through the conversation and you allow the conversation, the time to move down, then often the group, when they are ready, someone says it. And when one person says it, everybody sees it. And at that point, the group is transformed. I think the professional choice, and there is no right wrong here, as you know, is do we do we actually put this up front to say to people, here is a technology that we will use together? Or, or do, do we actually hold it back and just let the thing emerge for them? And you know, the dilemma always, as you know, as a practitioner is, do I intervene or do I allow the process to move down a natural uh, organic process? And no, and and what I like in that too is you know that there's so much freedom. And I think I think as all of us right get more proficient with our tools. As I'm saying that, I'm, I'm literally making the gesture of like juggling. Um, yep. You know that as we get more handy with the, the tools in our toolbox, I think we. I know for myself personally, I ha- I feel like I have more freedom to go off script or to let, you know, let things emerge. Um, and you're a master at that. <laughs> I'm going to ask you a question about something that you are, I'm going to argue that you have a, a certainly a degree of mastery in. And I want you to talk to the listeners about this notion of generational change. And I don't want, and obviously we're not going to go into it in great depth and we might come back to it in second questions, but you use the notion of generational change, particularly the generations are progressively coming through. What do you say about, because obviously, because obviously we all see organisations talking about generational change as if it's a thing. In other words, it's happening. You know, they are different. You know, they're different in the workplace. They're different here. They're different here. I'm a bit sceptical that whenever people that are trying to sell things to people start arguing that generations are different. Now, what do you say? Because this has actually been an area that you've worked in and actually claim expertise in. Yes. I mean, well, I used to. I mean, Next Generation Consulting is still the name of my of my business. And certainly when I did start it 20 years ago, generations was primary thing I was focused on. Um, but then about the time of the recession, I changed the focus of my business from generations to just the word next, (laughs) you know, that generations are one thing that we have to keep an eye on. So, you know, the, the social forces, but we, there are many other things as well, like how the economy is changing, uh, and so forth. But to your point, you know, I was one of those people who build myself as a generational expert and I use generations to kind of define the world. And then as I, you know, as the scales peeled back from my eyes over time and I did that debate thing where I, I could argue another side of the issue, I realized that it's, it was quite one dimensional. Mm. And like one of the things that um, I noticed that was more useful was life stage was to look at how people, you know, move through life stage. So we know that one of the best, one of the best inventions of our, of our time is how much life we've been able to add to a human being's life, you know, that we've been able to drastically extend people's time, which, you know, you could argue isn't necessarily a good thing for many reasons, but that's, that's an amazing thing. But what's also happened is uh, life stages have been, push back 
for younger generations. So you used to be, you know, out of the home and starting on your real life um, at the age of 18 or 19. And now 20 somethings uh, in developed countries live at home with their parents. In Italy, you know, young men live at home with their parents, possibly for their entire lives. You know, I mean, there are whole memes and, and trends around this. And so I think that's one thing that is is notable and should be tracked is how uh, life stages change for people. And that, uh, for example, in the United States, there are more people living alone now than there ever were before. Mm. And those are things that are worth looking at. And although they might be more predominant in one generation than in a previous generation, that doesn't make them generational per se. Mm. Thanks, Rebecca. Question three, the the emerging future question, the one that often I have to ask my guests to put down their expertness in terms of uh, talking about the emerging future and just talk to the human. How does Rebecca Bryan make sense of the emerging future around her? Both what is the emerging futures around you that you're paying attention to, but also how Rebecca Ryan makes sense of the emerging future around her? How I'm making sense of the future is um, it's primarily auditory. And, and by that, what I mean is I'm listening very carefully to the volume in my neighborhood. I am situated in a neighborhood that is six blocks from our state capital and two houses down from a small but adorable public beach. And it's summer here in the upper Midwest of the United States. And in April, when everything was stock still and so quiet, um, my wife and I would take our afternoon walks with our dogs and we wouldn't see anybody. You know, now we hear uh, screaming of laughter and children in the park and uh, the, the sound of airplanes going overhead so much more now uh, than before more vehicle traffic um, going by. And of course, uh, in late May of 2020, the sounds of protests uh, one, one block away from our, from our home on a major kind of a protest route or, and, and parade route. Those are the things that, th- those are the sounds that I'm using to perceive what and how things are changing. And I think the tool that I've used most is, um, you know, sitting zazen, seated meditation. It's been useful to me in a couple of ways. I mean, in a very practical way, I think we all have had this experience of time dilation. My friend Jan said to me a couple of weeks ago, she said, is it Wednesday or is it July? And (laughs) it's just perfect, right? Sitting Zazen at 7 a.m. every morning and at 7 p.m. every evening for 30 minutes really has helped give some needed structure to my days. Um, So it's been very practical in that way, having a little bit of a discipline and some structure to to days that especially several months ago felt like they were just all a big blur. But then the other thing is, is one of the purposes of Zazen is to reach this state of samadhi, 
absolutely alert, but completely relaxed concentration where you really feel like you're, you're merging into everything that's around you. And so the value of that for me has been to remember my stillness, to remember that part of me that does not move, that is always there. Uh, that has been really grounding for me and no time more than now. Uh, I feel like our skills as futurists have never been more needed, not just from a practical perspective of people trying to figure out the upper and lower limits of plausibility, but I have long made the argument that to, you know, to be a good futurist, you have to really have that grounded centeredness in you. Yeah, Stuart Candy in his podcast termed it what he called the emotional burden of the work we do. And Oh, I loved it when you talked about that. And it's not the burden for us as special people because it's the burden that we, and I don't want to make us sound noble either, we don't carry this burden for other people. But the burden we feel everyone else potentially feels as well. If, if people truly think about the future, there's a burden that comes with that. But hopefully there's also the energy and the responsibility that emerges. But, yeah, I agree completely that in terms of modelling how you remain centred and present and energised while a lot of things that people thought were stable and continuing fall apart, I think is one of the things that we both have to practise and also is a gift that we show others. Yeah, I, it's wonderful to hear you say that. And I, I remember I wrote that down when I heard it on that episode of Future Pod because it just it, it had that ring of truth. But this notion of stillness, I, I do just want to add that every summer I teach a futurist camp. You know, I just kind of open the kimono and say, here are the tools I use and anybody can learn to use them because that is the truth. This year, Futurist Camp was online. It was all remote. You were generous enough to come in and do a presentation on integral futures, which everyone still talks about. We always talk about being seven-year-olds and not 12-year-olds. Um, <laughs> so thank you. We, we had 24 total hours together live, spread over wow. six sessions. And the first two sessions, so the first eight hours, the first third of... Futurist camp was spent helping people slow their breathing mm. and calm down and notice things. I, I gave one assignment where all people had to do was go outside without their phone and just sit silently for five minutes and just notice. That's all the assignment was. You have no idea how many campers were like, five minutes felt like forever. <laughs> or um, I couldn't do it. We, we always had noticing homework. And by the end of it, you could, you could, it's almost like some of these folks had had a facelift, you know, <laughs> like they had given themselves permission to just slow down. Yes, it's almost the thing of the gift that people always had and they realize they now have it. Um, is one of the nicest you know, realizations for people. You don't lack for anything. It's all with you always. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's giving ourselves time and space to remember. Mm. Nice.
Fourth question, the communication question. I'm talking to communication expert. How do you describe what it is you do to people who don't necessarily understand what it is you do? It's a great question. And I don't know that I have, you know, the answer. I'm always so interested in hearing what your guests say about this. <laughs> you know, it's like, maybe I'm going to find solid gold. Um, the trope that I fall back on is, you know, I'm often doing this in the old days. I did it, you know, on stages, but now I do it by holding up a string to the camera. I say the string is a timeline and I've got a little dot in the center that's orange. And I say, this is today, right? And then my right finger is 20 years ago. And my left finger is 20 years in the future. I ask people to point to which direction we usually turn when we do our strategic plans. Do we look to the past or do we look to the future? And most people say we look to the past. And I say that that is a really irresponsible way to plan for the future. What if you could plan for the future by looking at the future? And that's what foresight is. So that's, that's, my, that's my best practice so far. It's nice. It's elegant, simple. If a person responds positively and leans towards you, then where do you go then? Uh, then what I do is I um, give them examples of all the ways that they're futurists in their own lives. Like, well, I don't know if this is still true, but it used to be that Alexa and Siri's most popular questions were, uh, what's the weather today? Mm. Or what time is it? And both of those questions are really about planning for the future, right? And you ask them if they carry insurance and what kind of insurance. And okay, then you're planning for your death or you're planning to be sick at some point, or you're, you're at least open to the plausibility that those things are going to happen. So I just try to bring it down. And, and then I, I often joke and say, and some of you are wondering when I am going to give you a break because your fluid levels are rising, you know, just to impart that we're constantly thinking about the future. We just aren't doing it. We often aren't doing it in a structured or strategic way. And that's what mm -hmm. we, I think we offer. What about, this may not happen, but what happens when, how do you respond or do you respond to people who respond, how would I say it? Some would say skeptically, some would say possibly even aggressively saying, but that's just common sense. That's not special. That's what we all, you know, that the person who wants to push back mm -hmm. on the naturalness of what you offered. I don't, but this would be a really fun improv game to have somebody say, oh, the future, that's just, that's bogus. Um, so then I could say, uh, how long were you planning uh, your question, sir? Sorry, did I make them a male intentionally? Um, yeah, yeah, well, well anyway. <laughs> that's okay. okay. That's okay. okay. Um, you know, so I think it'd be fun to to have some of that back and forth. But at the end, at the end of all that, I, I'm not attached to whether they want to argue about it or not. You know, I think that there are enough people who understand it and get it and want to be structured and creative about it that I'll just work with the ones who are ready. Hmm. Where do you stand on working with people who wish to create a future that you yourself as a human being don't particularly feel disposed towards? Mm, I haven't run into that yet. 
you know, most of my work is in the public sector. And so there's a, a bit of a kind of a shared commitment to good governance and helping communities work better for all people. And that's kind of who I am. You know, that really is uh, deep, deep within me. So maybe I I managed to create a niche where I don't have to work with people who I'm morally in disagreement with. Mm. I mean, again, using an improv game, would you? If you were contacted by Donald Trump's group wanting to, would you walk into the thing to see what happens or would you draw a line saying, I'm not going there? I think I would. No, I would. I think I would because you you can't influence on the outside of that system. I think you have to be on the inside. And I mean, let's be honest, if we were betting, you know, I would, might be kicked out or tweeted about or leave with my own hands and fists flying in the air, shouting into the wind, but it'd be worth a go. Mm. And what I, what I do think is that I, th- I find people just fascinating. You know, people are, all people are damaged and all people are broken. And, and that, and that shows up in the work too. But one of the reasons you do futures together, right. I think is because it, both reflects how futures truly unfold as a team effort, as a group effort, as a societal effort, but also it helps us smooth out our brokenness. But yeah, I would, I'd take that call. Thanks for being here. Last question. You are, Resident Futurist for Local Government Institute of Wisconsin. You have said that you do that you do most of your work in local government. Do you want to, as a last question, just talk about you know, really what you think, you know, what you see in all the work you're doing? You know, what is the, you know, what are the challenges? What are the opportunities? Because we are, every every place in the world has has local government. Yeah, and that's where you started, isn't it? I mean, were you in the budget office? Yeah. So I would I would love some of your thoughts on this too. Well, the near-term future for local governments in the United States at least is really coming into full view. You know, we've had between 10 and 15% reductions in force. Budgets for the next fiscal year and possibly two fiscal years are estimated to go down between 20 and 40%. And this is, you know, happening at a time when in some communities they just got their budget back to parity from the Great Recession. And there's a, there's a lot less margin to cut. And then you think about the moves to defund the police or at least to have a serious rethink about what public safety means. And, I, I mean, I, I feel like a kid in a candy store right now because this is maybe a once-in-a-lifetime for me, opportunity to help people use these carrots and sticks, you know, the sticks of no money, no people, very little confidence, partisan politics that, um, I mean, the amount of shouting that we're seeing 
from school boards to uh, local units of government, you know, city, city governments, elected officials. It's like nothing I've ever seen before. And I really don't see how it gets worse than this. So if, if you can buy that we might be bottoming out here, budget-wise, exhaustion-wise, frustration-wise, then something wants to be. And the question is, what is that? And what I'm feeling optimistic about is, for example, here in the United States, 61% of all white people believe that black people are unfairly treated by the police. There has never been more support for Black Lives Matter. That's, is, that creates an opportunity to rethink our systems uh, and what the purpose is of those systems around some common and shared values. And so there's a, there's like in, in my, in my daydream right now, I'm fantasizing about every community, every local unit of government doing a robust and in really highly engaging value process where residents get to talk with each other about their shared values and then we have the conversation about, okay, so then these are our values, then what should local government look like? And then after we have a sense, a vision of what it should look like, then we start saying, well, what departments or systems would we need to have? You know, that we, we just, I don't want to say blow this thing up, but I just did. But we really, because everyone agrees that if we were starting today, local governments would not look like what they look like. So we're in this, like this lucid dream possibility space right now where so many things have been called into question and there's so much murkiness and there's so little money, but there's so much passion. Yeah, well, the boats have been burnt. The boats have been burnt. People didn't burn them by choice. They've been burnt because they've been burnt. Been burnt. That's right. That's the, that's Rebecca Ryan's current daydream about the future of local government. Yeah. A person who influenced me tremendously on thinking about local government was Fabienne Gabodimont. When Fabienne was in Australia and she talked about a particular way that they practice foresight in France, which was, and, I, and I'm, I'm not going to try and say this in the correct accent, but what she called territorial perspective, which is the notion of the future of place, because places are always there. They have history and they have futures. And it's a beautiful pivot from people who are in places but also are in the place that someone was was before me. And this is also a place that I am preparing for the person who comes after me. So this is you know Joanna Macy's notion of to link generations through time. And I've always found that local government and communities when that is brought to their attention, they actually can embrace futures in a very concrete, real way because they know this place, whatever this place is. It might be a place they spent their whole life in or it might be a place they spent the last two, two or three years in. But the place itself almost has its own persona, its own history, its own story, and they are agents of, agents of the place. I really love that as kind of a guiding principle for future futures making because it it overcomes 
this allergic reaction that every citizen has when, I mean, here in the U.S. several years ago, everybody wanted to be the next, next Austin, Texas. And then before that was big, everybody wanted to be Silicon Valley, right? And of course, that's impossible for myriad reasons, but not the least of which is what you just touched on, which is what is our cultural DNA? What is our terroir? You know, I, I think back in, in the United States, like where I live right now in Madison, Wisconsin, and, you know, I am on the land of the Ho-Chunk people, you know, and they, are, they were the people of the big voice. And they had a completely different way of, uh, than other tribes and other First Nations in the U.S. of how they organized themselves, how they held land in trust, and how they continue actually to do that. And I find those ways of thinking and interbeing as far more life-giving than these, these later add-ons. And I, I wonder, I deeply wonder, I am deeply holding this question, what the Ho-Chunk way could mean for the future of local government where I live. I mean, their story is still continuing. Their story hasn't ended because someone else has been telling another story because <laughs> we tell stories over one another and our stories become shared stories and they become also different stories. It feels right to me. Well, thanks, Rebecca. It's been fun to talk, always good to talk. Uh, thanks for taking some time out to talk to the FuturePod community. It's a pleasure to be with you and to make even a small drip of contribution into this amazing archive that you and your colleagues are creating. I am so grateful for FuturePod, and it's on the recommended listening list for all of our future campers, so thank you. Thanks, Rebecca. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now. Mm-hmm.